from uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast, where we sometimes veer off the serial killer path to delve into other topics within our beloved true crime community. Special thanks to my patrons who voted for this episode. Thank you guys so, so much. You are truly appreciated. And for anyone else, please feel free to join my patrons so that you can vote on who will be covered next or get early access to the podcasts. Like, share, and subscribe. It might just help our little community grow. Even if you just contribute $1 a month, it would help me reach my goal of being able to bring you more content with more visuals and perhaps interviews and so on. So keep that in mind. So today's podcast was voted for by patrons and will be on a family annihilator, Josh Powell. Now, listen, I know this case has been beaten to death. That horse been dead, right? Truly. I'm sure most of us are all very intimately aware of the details of this case. I know that I am. But I've also had a lot of people ask me to cover this case for the way that I kind of approach these cases and for my perspective. So ask and you shall receive. So here we go. In order to talk about Josh Powell and his sins, we really must start at the root of it all. His family, and namely his father, who also plays a very central role to this story. So, for this part one, we are going to do a deep dive into Stephen's backstory and introduce Josh as the central player of this tale of woe. So, as I said, the first character is Stephen Craig Powell. Stephen was born on December 19, 1949, in Portland, Oregon. But if we go all the way back to the first Powell on U.S. soil, Stephen's great-great-grandfather, John Powell, hailed from Nottinghamshire, England, which is sort of near the middle of the country-ish-esque. He immigrated to the U.S. at some point and died in 1907 at the age of 60 in Idaho. John's son, John Edward, was born in Utah and also died in Idaho, one of ten children. John Edward married and was a farmer, and he and his wife had eight children. One of these children was Stephen's grandfather, Samuel Lester Powell Sr., who was actually born just over the border in Alberta, Canada. Now, Samuel is the first Powell I conclusively found who was most assuredly deep in the Mormon religious faith. He specifically followed one branch of it that allowed plural wives, and so he took two wives. Stephen's father was Samuel Lester Powell, Jr., born in 1926 from Sr. Samuel's second wife. Try saying that five times fast. The first wife had had children prior to marrying Sr. Samuel, but all of his biological children were through his second plural wife, They had three sons together, but sadly, 
their third son was stillborn. Now, Samuel Jr. spent a lot of his youth on his grandfather, John Edwards' farm. But when he wasn't there, he helped the family run a grocery store and gas station with his mother. Suffice to say that, at least for the most part, the greatest portion of the Powell family lived in Idaho. So Stephen's father, or Josh Powell's grandfather, Samuel Jr., joined the Navy when he was 17 years old and served during World War II, being honorably discharged a year after the war was over. While in the Navy, Samuel served as a radio man on a torpedo bomber. Once he got back, he settled into domesticity with his wife. Now, what's interesting is that sources say his wife was a woman by the name of Mary Jane, but in the Powell family tree, Stephen's mother is listed as Mabel J. Roach. So Mary Jane versus Mabel J., we have to assume that that's the same person, right? But Samuel Jr. began his career working for the Spokesman Review out of Spokane, Washington, Spokane, Washington, working his way up to the circulation director. He and his wife had three children, a daughter, then Stephen in 1949, and then another son. But Stephen would later say that while his mother was pregnant with his baby brother, his mother decided to leave his father and move from Portland, Oregon to Chillicothe, Ohio. There, the single mother worked as a secretary, and Stephen said that sometimes they barely even had food on the table. But after a few months, his father located his wife, that was how it was worded, located his wife and children, and the couple reconciled. Now, what exactly happened that made Mabel slash Mary make the very real decision in the very early 50s to just up and leave her husband had me curious. She had hailed from Utah. So why did she choose specifically Chillicothe, Ohio? Both of her parents had been born in Utah, but she did have a sister that died in New York. So perhaps that sister had lived for a time in Ohio. But again, this is really speculation. Doesn't really matter. Regardless, Samuel and Mary slash Mabel went back and lived in Portland for a short time before, according to Stephen, they moved down to Southern California so that his father could work in the aerospace industry. They bought a modest house in Redondo Beach. Stephen also says that his paternal grandparents, so Samuel Sr., had moved to Santa Monica prior to his father moving the family down to California. Apparently, Samuel Sr. and Samuel Jr. both worked at Hughes Aircraft, as in Howard Hughes, though they did not know him personally. Senior had worked on the production line, and Junior worked in the tool crib. So Stephen has hinted that his mother was abusive and would abandon him and his brother and sister, sometimes with her parents. But then on his own website, he specifically wrote, quote, In only a matter of months, my dad made a unilateral and secretive decision to separate from my mom. So on a given weekend, he took us to visit his parents while my mom went to spend the weekend with her aunt in Burbank. Unbeknownst to her, my grandparents had, prior to that weekend visit, transported their trailer house to Northern California and parked it. When we headed over to see my grandparents and kept going north on Highway 1, something seemed amiss to me, even at seven years old. Quote, 
Where is Mama? I asked. Grandma curtly replied, quote, You're never going to see your mother again. My brother, my sister, and I were inconsolable. My baby brother probably just wondered what the commotion was about. So Stephen himself says there was also an older brother. There was a lot of back and forth in the source material with how many siblings he had. He said, We kept driving until we reached Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Grandma and Grandpa parked their trailer house at a trailer camp along the highway where I-90 now runs. My dad moved to Yakima, Washington, where he had found work as a district supervisor for a regional newspaper. The good news for me was that I did not have to finish the last few weeks of second grade, and the next year I started into third grade without missing a beat. On one occasion, while playing with other kids, I informed one of my buddies that my grandparents had kidnapped us. My brother who overheard, reported the conversation back to my grandmother who encouraged me to keep my mouth shut by pouring a liberal dose of cayenne pepper on my tongue and making me stand in the corner, end quote. Oh, and just to add a little bit of tinfoil spice, right? Stephen's father was an active member of the Masonic organization Blue Lodge and Scottish Rite, the Eastern Star Royal Order of the Amaranth, veteran of foreign wars, and the American Legion. So according to the Salt Lake Tribune, Stephen grew up in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, a.k.a. Mormonism, attended Brigham Young University, or BYU, in Provo, Utah, quite predictably. Stephen spent his first two-year missions trip in Argentina, South America, but when he came back, he worked in real estate, at least for a time, before working as a salesman for the furniture company Verco, where he stayed for quite some time. And it was at church where the now 24-year-old Stephen met 18-year-old Terica or Terry Martin. They began dating in 1973. Now, Terry told the Salt Lake Tribune, quote, He was fun to be around. He was outgoing, and people all around were drawn to him. He had a beautiful singing voice and sang on many occasions for weddings, funerals, and church meetings, end quote. And it didn't take long for Stephen to propose to Terry, but her father wanted no part of it. It's as if her father had a sense of how strange Stephen really was, but a bishop within the church was able to, in a way, override that objection, telling Terry it was her decision alone. So they got married anyway. And a neighbor of the young couple who first settled down in Veradale, Washington, which is basically a suburb of Spokane, Washington, stated that when the couple were first married, it was obvious that Stephen was in love with Terry in the beginning, the neighbor said that Stephen was enthusiastic, friendly, and clean living. Stephen and Terry's first child was daughter Jennifer, born in 1974, and the parents were thrilled. Josh Powell was the next child, born in 1976, then Johnny in 77, followed by Michael in 82, and then the baby girl Alina, or Alina, was born in 1985. Now, by the mid-80s, it was becoming quite obvious that Stephen was no longer wanting to be an active member of the LDS Church. Leading up to him openly leaving the faith, 
people noticed how he had begun to change. While I wasn't able to find what his specific reasoning was for leaving the church, acquaintances said that they were able to see the change in his behavior. Stephen went from a loving and kind person to being filled with a sort of darkness and hatred. His respect for others and for basic, social, moral values seemed to have been abandoned by him when he was in his mid to late 30s. Instead, he seemed to be advocating for a life of self-gratification that led not only himself, but his children and other family members in an unhealthy direction. It was like Stephen lost his basic social skills that were very much needed for him to be able to function in normal society. So a co-worker at Verco Manufacturing said that his increasingly condescending, belligerent, intolerant, and dogmatic behaviors and approaches to life were surprising and also disappointing. Another co-worker said that he, too, had watched Stephen's behavior become extreme over the course of the 15 years he worked with him. The co-worker said, quote, He told me numerous times that the entire government is totally corrupt and the feds were deceiving the American public and they were trying to get him, end quote. So we are seeing some possible signs of paranoia and delusions, at least on some level. And side note, I mean, yeah, we all know the government is corrupt, but what he is displaying is above and beyond the average distrust that really most of us have now. So we are well past his childhood. But I wanted to take a moment to analyze what we know so far about Stephen. His ancestors were clearly hardworking people. At some point, they joined the Mormon faith. His grandfather even adopted the plural wife branch of Mormonism. But as far as any major traumas or life events with regards to his ancestry, things seemed pretty normal. I believe the trauma started with his father, Samuel Jr. Now, of course, it's hard to find all of the information about everything that happened to ancestors. But I wish I could have found more intimate information about why his pregnant mother took herself and the children and secretly left her husband to live in Ohio. Why? Why did she leave? You look at the distance from Portland to Chillicothe, Ohio. I looked it up. It is nearly 2,500 miles. Master Google says it is a 35-hour trip. And she did this in the very early 50s on top of that. So why? Why did she feel she had to put that vast amount of miles between the children and herself and her husband? Now, Stephen himself indicated that his parents would just kidnap him and his siblings and withhold them from the other parent. He seemed rather flippant about it, really. And there could be a few reasons why, but the two most common are either one, they feel that they and or the children are in some form of danger, or two, they are withholding the children from the other parent to punish them. Toxic parents, or what has been coined malicious parent syndrome, is described as a pattern of abnormal behavior during the divorce or separation process. This term will be very, very important later in the story. Okay, malicious parent syndrome goes along the same vein as parental alienation syndrome in children, which was coined in 1985. 
It's important to note that neither malicious parent syndrome nor parental alienation syndrome are actually medically recognized. Healthcare professionals do not treat either as a mental illness. Also, neither is a recognized diagnosis in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders or our shared beloved DSM. Rather, malicious parent syndrome describes a type of behavior at issue in some court cases. I cannot tell you which was the case for Stephen's mother. Stephen remembers it being very financially tough on them when they were in Ohio. His father found them and the parents reconciled and they moved back west. But then we see Samuel Jr. and his family moving to California for a while and he took with him his wife and children. This is, of course, mere speculation, but it very much feels like he was separating her or even isolating her from her family in Utah. It very much feels like a controlling power move. And then, as if to punish his wife for what she had done, he and his parents put Stephen and his siblings in a vehicle and secretly took them up to northern Idaho, 1,400 miles north and away from her while she had been gone visiting a relative. Stephen was told that he would never see his mother again. When he told a childhood friend he had made after the move that his grandparents had taken him from his mother, his brother told on him, and his grandmother put cayenne pepper in his mouth and made him stand in the corner. But it is the pepper in the mouth for me, right? It's the, we don't talk about anything unapproved or else you will be in physical pain for me. Imagine being a small child and having to experience being kidnapped for all intents and purposes away from your father, then going back to just be kidnapped by your parental grandparents at your father's behest and withholding you from your mother. Imagine the mental turmoil. Between his mother taking the children and running away, considering we know that his father found, quote-unquote, them in Ohio, the constant moving and then his father's parents taking the children and basically running away, how would the children learn to feel safe and able to develop that, you know, crucial sense of permanence and foundation that comes from growing up in the same area with the same peers, feeling, you know, secure enough to be able to mentally and physically develop normally? And all of this behind the veil of Mormonism in the name of faith and religion. So it is no surprise to me that Stephen didn't grow up learning any real healthy strategies with regards to handling stress or the uneasiness of navigating close personal relationships. Being that he was raised in the Mormon faith, at least back then, it wouldn't surprise me whatsoever if he held some animosity towards his mother as that break in his parents' relationship being her fault. Small children are not capable of understanding the complicated issues behind relationships. But he still grew up to stay within the Mormon faith. He married the devoted and faithful Mormon girl like he was supposed to and began having child after child, which is what that faith pushes. Cults are, you know, all about more warm bodies in the temples, but I digress. So let's get back into it. After all of the reading I did regarding Stephen, it became pretty apparent to me that he ruled his home with an iron fist. One particular example is a statement from their eldest child, Jennifer, where she said, quote, 
He was extremely controlling and verbally abusive. He was always putting her down, saying things like petty things. I mean, she couldn't even cook a meal without getting insulted. She kept a reasonably clean house, you know, but with five kids, it's hard to keep things in perfect order. End quote. Another example is that a few of the children unfortunately wet the bed, so Stephen would force those children into a bathtub full of ice water and make them sit in it for a minimum of half an hour all the way up to their necks, and that was the minimum. And just in time for him to decide he didn't want to be in the LDS church, his wife and her family began noticing a rather large personality shift in Stephen as well. They described him as going from a friendly, fun guy to one who was belligerent, condescending, and again, speaking of government conspiracies and corruption. Terry also later told the court she worried about his use of pornography and profanity in front of their children. She was especially displeased when he brought home a book for the children titled, quote, The Occult, A History by Colin Wilson, and yet another book he introduced to the children, which was titled, quote, The Symbolism of Evil. This deeply upset Terry that he would be introducing their children to these types of topics. Another concerning behavior Terry noticed was that Stephen had become very secretive and writing weird shit in his journals, and that she worried that he might be up to something bad. But do not doubt his growing hatred for and anger towards the LDS church, and Stephen even began trying to sway the children away from the church as well. It was said that Stephen did approach his wife about bringing in another wife into the home, to which Terry declined. She later said that Stephen didn't hold anything back with regards to talking openly about sex and especially so in front of the small children. He openly preached in front of the kids that women were only good for their bodies. But the most disturbing behavior Stephen began displaying was sharing pornography with the boys, especially young Josh. Just barely in his early teens, Josh was exposed to these polar opposites. You see, his mother was devoted to her church. She cooked, she cleaned, she tried to be a good influence on her children, was faithful and predictable, and provided that predictable stability for her children as best as she could. Stephen was quickly becoming the opposite. He spewed venom at his wife's faith, talked about his hatred for the church, introduced his children and, namely, his sons, to pornography, the occult, and any number of other things that went against his wife. It was as if he were rebelling against everything she stood for. Another troubling bit of behavior from Stephen was that he didn't really like or respect his wife, and he began trying to teach, again, namely the boys, to be very disrespectful to their mother. He told his sons that they didn't have to listen to their mother, and the children really grew up feeling pretty negative about authority. Terry became a little fearful of her husband and the abuse she was enduring from her sons, both mentally and a little physically. It went so far as to having Josh holding a knife and telling his mother to not push him after she asked him to do something as simple as the dishes. He held a knife up and told her that she better not push it. 
So this is probably as good a place as any to introduce our actual main character, the man the podcast is really about. Joshua Stephen Powell, born on January 20th, 1976, in a suburb of the southeast part of Tacoma, Washington. As we already know, he was the second of five children. And while I couldn't immediately find a lot of information about him as a child, one gets a pretty good idea of what the environment was like in his childhood home. His father, once in the LDS church, who wanted to start a music career, sort of flipped a switch and began treating Josh's mother like garbage. Josh was taught to disrespect women by his own father, who again also exposed him to pornography and the occult. It was said that Josh began displaying very troubling behaviors as an older child going into his teens. One such behavior was killing at least one family gerbil, but it was indicated he had killed more than just one family pet. At another point, he even tried to end his own life by hanging himself when he was 14 years old, although they said it was a half-hearted attempt. And with the large kitchen knife displayed at his own mother, well, that terrified her to her core. And really, what was Terry to do? Not only was Stephen not assisting her in trying to maintain discipline and order in their house, but he was egging the boys on in this, and at the very least, obscenely inappropriate and disrespectful in their behavior. So in 1992, Terry finally got up enough courage to file for divorce. Josh, at this time, was about 16 years old. Their oldest, Jennifer, had just graduated high school, and behind Josh were three more children. So when Terry filed for divorce, she also simultaneously filed for a restraining order against Stephen to immediately keep him from having any contact with her or the children. And actually, their divorce court documents are quite telling. You see, Terry was interested in all natural healing methods, herbs, and was trying to make it sort of jive with her love of Mormonism. But Stephen accused her of witchcraft and devil worship. In the court documents, he did this. Terry, in turn, stated that Stephen's porn addiction and his exposing their sons to it made him unfit, that it had corrupted him. Terry would go on to say that Stephen was particularly harsh with Josh, often lashing out at him far too aggressively. To this, Stephen would say, quote, At times I have no idea how to handle Josh. He is now a little taller than I and may, with his regular weightlifting, be a little stronger and bulkier than I. I cannot spank him. Spanking didn't even help when he was younger, end quote. But one of Terry's brothers, the children's uncle, wrote, quote, Over the past few years, I have seen Steve change from a loving and kind person to a person seemingly filled with darkness and hatred, whose respect for others and for basic and social moral values has been abandoned for a path of self-gratification that leads not only himself but his children in a direction that is not only unhealthy, but does not recognize basic social skills that are needed to function in society, end quote. And again, these were all in the court documents. 
The Salt Lake Tribune published an article saying that Stephen had penned letters to a local newspaper to express support for Randy Weaver. And if you aren't familiar with that story, just let me know. I'll be happy to cover it. But Randy was the man who drew national headlines in 1992 when his white separatist family became involved in a standoff with the FBI at Ruby Ridge in northern Idaho. And during all of this, though Terry didn't specify which son exactly, one of the boys wrote a story titled Revealing Darkness, in which they wrote many pages talking about sadomasochistic fantasies, which included violent sexual assault against women, cannibalism with regards to boiling and stuffing women like a Thanksgiving turkey, and there were also disturbing sketches in the notebook. The sketches were mostly pornographic in nature, along with what most would associate with how we view death himself. And as if that isn't bad enough, there were magazine cutouts from Playboy of nude women while quite concerning comments were written all around. I have my suspicions that the author of this was Josh, because he was at that prime age to be exploring these kinds of thoughts, though the next younger boy was only a year younger. But Josh had already attempted suicide, he had killed family pets, so on and so forth. But the source material did not name him specifically, so I just want to put that out there. Ultimately, the divorce was granted and finalized for the most part, in 1994 when Josh was 18. They had to square away the financials after. But the boys had already moved out of the family home and in with their father in an apartment. The girls stayed with their mother, and actually, Terry had petitioned the court to not give Stephen custody of the boys at all, since she did not feel that they were safe with him. She offered that the boys perhaps go elsewhere, maybe a foster home where they would be safe and away from their father. You see, Josh would accompany his father and brothers to physically bully Terry during all of this. Just absolutely terrible. Terry was actually scared of her own sons. And it is important to remember that Stephen was emotionally and physically abusive. It was said that Josh was both scared of his father and also desperately wanted his approval. A note that he wrote to his father said, quote, Dad, we talked the other day about stuff of me moving out and either living with someone else or in my car. You said that I'd probably be more unhappy, but I'm going to find out. Tonight, I wanted to go to youth, but you grounded me. After some thought, I decided to go anyway. I would come home, but you will just yell, and that's the last thing I need right now after a crappy week. I have to say it was definitely worth it. I feel a lot better now. I didn't have time to prepare, so my room is a mess. I'll have to box up all of my stuff later. Michael or John might as well have my room like we talked about. Things are a bit complicated now, so please try not to make it harder. I think it's going to work out. Maybe we can be better friends this way. Josh. P.S. I just didn't want you guys to stay up all night worrying. End quote. But for whatever reason, which is truly beyond me, Stephen got custody of the three still minor children. Can you imagine? Josh was no longer a minor at this point, and Jennifer, the oldest, of course, stayed with her mother. The youngest child, Alina, 
or Alina, who was still in grade school, became brainwashed by her father and would later become one of Stephen's biggest supporters. I can imagine this was accomplished by Stephen getting Josh and John to also talk horrible about their mother. As we all know, sometimes the court system just fails. I mean, I know this all too well. But, as it usually does, the dust settled. After graduating high school, Josh went on to attend the University of Washington in Seattle while living in an apartment there. While in college and attending Temple at the LDS Church, he met and began dating a girl named Catherine. Now, the relationship moved quite quickly, and she actually moved in with Josh for a time. But once she became settled and the relationship became quite serious, Catherine began noticing Josh's behavior toward her changing. You see, it started out with small changes, as they do, as abusive partners often do, but began to escalate to him controlling how she lived her life. She told a local news station, quote, He would have restrictions and limitations on what I could and couldn't do when it came to my family. If I was going to go visit them, he had to come too. I couldn't go by myself, end quote. And Josh began showing very troubling, obsessive, and controlling behaviors, and finally Catherine had had enough. She told Josh she was going to visit a friend in Utah, and surprisingly, Josh did not demand he go with her, or her not go at all. And once she got there, she decided she was not going back. She broke the relationship off over the phone. What she would learn Josh did to his family years later would actually send her into a depression. Now, sources say that Josh then joined the Institution of Religion, which is an organization that provides a sort of religious education for young adults who are members of the Mormon Church. Sometimes meetings are in formal or designated buildings, but these meetings can happen at a private residence as well. The LDS Church describes the purpose of the Institute program as, quote, weekday religious instruction for single and married post-secondary students. So one gets the sense that it's a religious singles meeting situation, if you know what I mean. Institutes often sponsor activities such as dances, and young adult church members are encouraged, although not required, to be enrolled in an institute class whenever possible. And it was at one of these functions that 24-year-old Josh met 19-year-old Susan Marie Cox, nearly the exact age as his parents when they married. And so this is where we will pause the story. We've really done a deep dive into Stephen's childhood and life. His childhood was most assuredly not typical, and we saw that his mother kidnapped him and his siblings to flee his father, only for his father to find his wife and children, and they, quote, reconciled. Then once Stephen's mother got comfortable again, his father had his paternal grandparents take the children and move states away to keep them from their mother. This is a highly manipulative situation, and without more information, I'm not sure which parent takes most of the blame, but something tells me it was his father. So Stephen grew up in a state of anxiousness, not being able to fully relax and have that predictable day-to-day -day life that all children need. 
And while it would be great to ask Stephen exactly what the catalyst was that made him kind of snap, if you will, that isn't possible. If we take all of the little hints, though, we can paint at least a tentative picture. I personally feel like he was, at the very least, a narcissist. If he didn't have full narcissistic personality disorder, he definitely displayed traits, which include having an unreasonably high sense of their own importance. They require constant, excessive admiration and attention. They fully believe that they are entitled to privileges and special treatment. They make their achievements or talents a much bigger deal than they often are. And this jives with Stephen wanting to be a musician, considering his music is just not good. It's complete crap. They are often preoccupied with fantasies about success, power, the perfect mate, and so on. They do feel that they are superior to others and only care to spend their time with people of equal caliber in their eyes. They are very critical and look down on others that they don't find terribly important, and they take advantage of people. They are either not able or completely unwilling to recognize the needs or feelings of others, and they often behave in an arrogant way. They brag quite a lot, and they come across as conceited. But in turn, if people don't all but worship them, they become angry. They are easily slighted and have issues interacting with others in a sincere manner. But it is important to remember that underneath all of that bravado hides their secret feelings of insecurity, shame, humiliation, and a fear of being exposed as a failure. Stephen wanted to be a musician and it wasn't working out. He wanted a second wife, and Terry refused. And when these two and other factors began to crawl all over him, it is like he had a toddler temper tantrum and began turning his own children against their mother. He behaved in the most disturbing, petty way and did not care in the slightest how his behaviors toward his children's mothers would affect them. He wasn't at all concerned that teaching his sons in particular that women are only good for their bodies and having sex with, that if a woman isn't in compliance for whatever reason, then they are to be punished. Now, if that isn't foreshadowing regarding this story, and especially part two, where we will see the rotten fruits of Stephen's labors, then I don't know what else is. What do you think about the story so far, guys? I encourage you to leave me a comment and tell me what you think. I love reading all of them, even the trolls. Sincerely. But stay tuned for part two where we will get into Josh's story. And as always, thank you so much for listening, guys. Because I know you could have been listening to anyone else. But you chose me. You continue to choose me. And I really appreciate that, guys. I honestly do. Thank you so much. And... Have a great day. Yeah, anybody who killed more than two or three people was a mass murderer. And whether it was all at one place or over an extended period of time, and then uh, in the early 80s, they came up with this differentiation called serial killing. 